This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Let's go to St. John's because they didn't want what they got over the weekend. They didn't want 70-some centimeters of snow, but they certainly got all of that, and it has created a state of emergency. And we are lucky enough to be able to talk with Jessica McCarthy, who was born in Ontario. She knows what weather's like around here and now lives in St. John's, Newfoundland. And she takes us back to what everyone in Newfoundland was hearing when the forecast began to get hold of what their storm was going to be like. Uh, we heard there could be 70-plus centimeters of snow, and then it ended up being plus that. Uh, I think we got a total of, like, 76 uh, centimeters of snow. And so uh, we heard that there was going to be a lot of snow and also really high winds. It was the other issue that we were facing. Uh, So we didn't really know what to expect, uh, given that, because we hadn't seen anywhere near that amount of snow before. Now, let us know, living in Newfoundland, what a winter is like, because I've heard that everybody has to have a snowblower, not just because, you know, the the driveways are long or whatever, but because you can get a dumping of snow like this in a really short period of time, and if you don't stay caught up and the snowblower helps, you could be really, really snowed in. So how rare was what you saw this weekend? Uh... I would say it was more snow than we've ever gotten before because it was record-breaking amounts of snow. Uh, but in general, all of our neighbors do have snowblowers, and so we don't have one. And so they've been really helpful in snow blowing us out in general. Um, so in uh, we have ordered a snowblower now, and it should be delivered later this week. <laughs> so given... Yeah, given the intense amount of snow we just got, we just ordered a snowblower. Finally broke down. That's good. When a dumping of snow like this happens, can you give us an idea of what life was like as it was coming down? Uh, We really just looked out the window and were amazed by the amount of snow. And we also opened the front door and it was like three quarters of the way up the door. So, like, the door open, and there was just this solid wall of snow. So you had Uh, one of those. I mean, I've seen those on commercials and things. I think somebody had a picture in Buffalo one time, but you actually had that happen. Yeah, we did. So when you opened your door, did you you know that was what it was going to look like? Did you have an inkling that, well, there's a lot of snow you see through a window. It's kind of piling up on the front porch. Did you know, or did you just open the door and think, we're trapped? an inkling because I could see it through the window of the door, but (laughs) then it was that much more intense to see the imprint of the uh, doorknob in the snow. We're talking with Jessica McCarthy, who lives in St. John's, Newfoundland, and they had over 70 centimeters of snow fall. So if you've heard even one complaint from one of your neighbors, just tell them Jessica's story, and uh, we're not allowed to complain. (laughs) So what exactly is the strategy when you open your door and all it is is a wall of snow? Do you bring some of that in? Do you try and push through it going out? What did you do? 
Uh, we had a group of five people going through the neighborhood and uh, shoveling people's doorways out. So forget so the driveways. Crazy. Never mind the driveways yeah. right away. It was doorways first. Yeah. Yeah, so those five people going around the whole neighborhood uh, shoveled out most of the doorways. That's wild. Okay, so you get yeah. your doorway shoveled out. What about food or things like that? The weekend is when typically you go to the grocery store and restock. Were you ready for this? Uh, we, uh, I went to the grocery store on Thursday, I think. Um, yeah, uh, knowing that the amount of snow that was coming. And uh, there has been a state of emergency in place where you're not allowed to drive your car and could face up to a $1,000 fine. Uh, so it's not possible to even go to the stores now. So I was really glad that I went on Thursday. And this is still in place right now and that rule is still in place? No driving? Yeah, no driving on the roads, uh, which is essentially no driving. And it will be lifted tomorrow between maybe 10 and 6. You're allowed to go to grocery stores to get essentials like food and those kind of things. But other than that, they still don't want anyone on the roads. What is the weather like right now? I just noticed that it's slightly snowing ever so lightly again now. Uh, but in general, like we went out for a nice walk around the neighborhood yesterday and I was able to my son on his sled down the road because it hasn't been super plowed um so it i am looking at the window right now and it's still lightly snowing and has there been a break i mean have you seen kind of you know after those big storms come through sometimes it'll get nice and sunny have you seen anything like that yet yeah we did have sun yesterday uh afternoon and then it snowed another i think 25 centimeters last night I could be wrong on the amount, but... Enough. It, it, whatever it was, it was it was more than just the little flakes that you're seeing right now. That is incredible. Yeah. And have you ever been through any of this or anything like this anywhere that you've ever lived before? I have not. No, I did do my undergrad in New Brunswick, and it would snow a lot there, but nothing like this. Nothing like this. Well, we'll see if uh, this is one of those annual events, or hopefully it's just this one-time event so you can have really cool stories to talk about, but you don't have to relive it again. Jessica, thank you so much for reliving it with us. We really appreciate the time. No problem. That is Jessica McCarthy, who lives in St. John's, Newfoundland, calling for 70 centimeters of snow. They got 70-plus, as Jessica told us, and her doorway was three-quarters of the way covered. You open the door, and the imprint of your door is there in snow. So people were not going out shoveling driveways. They were going and shoveling out doorways. State of emergency, stay off the roads. It has been absolutely unbelievable in St. John's, Newfoundland. But at least, as Jessica says, they're hoping to have that state of emergency lifted sometime tomorrow. Complaining is just a thing that we do, right? If you have a complaint, a grievance, we always invite you on London Live. Give us a call, send us an email, let us know what it is. We'll try and help you out with it. 519-643-2222. Email mike at 980cfpl.ca. Go ahead.
what's wrong? Let's see if we can get to the bottom of it. Let's see if we can make it better. But there are good ways to complain, and there are apparently not so good ways to complain. And we're about to try and figure out how to do it right. Dr. Robin Kowalski is a centennial professor of psychology at Clemson University and brings forth research that focuses primarily on aversive interpersonal behaviors. But she's done a lot of looking and studying into the world of complaining. Dr. Kowalski, how are things today? And they're great. Thanks for asking. How about yourself? I'm I'm fantastic. And look at that. Both of us have had a conversation already for about 10 seconds. Neither one of us has a complaint. We both sound like we're in good moods. We're taught not to complain, not to whine, aren't we? And yet it seems like there are some documented benefits out of all of this all of a sudden. Yeah, you know, we do have this connotation that that complaining is always bad, but I think if you're an effective complainer and you do it strategically, it can um, produce some, some beneficial effects. Effective complaining and strategic complaining. I love it. <laughs> yeah, but you have to do it carefully. Okay. Um, you know, you have to, you know, every, everything in moderation, for example. Um, you know, we've all heard that phrase, and certainly the same thing applies to complaining. You know, if you complain chronically, um, that's not being an effective complainer. You know, if you complain indiscriminately to everybody and their brother, that's also not being an effective complainer. Then you're just a complainer. Right, exactly. Um, and you're going to annoy everybody that's around you. So you really do have to, you know, be careful about how often you complain, to whom you complain. You know, if you're going to be strategic, you're going to carefully select the audience depending on on what it is you're complaining about. So, you know, if I've got, you know, a complaint about you know, the charter company or the, or the cable company, um, then, you know, I might complain to the, the company if I really want something done about it. Complaining to you about that is really not going to produce any benefit for me. That's strategic complaining. Ah, I got you. Okay, so you're not just venting to friends and family members and filling their lives with, oh, what's wrong with this person now? You can have that complaint. You can use it strategically and hopefully get something done. So let's then learn how to complain. Why don't we take that as an example? If you have a problem with your cable company, as many people do, in fact, you know, I've, I've been advised to just call the cable company and ask for the Department of Retention. Just skip everybody else, tell them that you're about to leave, and they'll give you stuff. And I don't know how effective that is. It, uh, it does kind of avoid complaints, but let's look at it from a more strategic complaining method. So let's say that I'm unhappy with what I'm paying for cable. How do I strategically complain about that? So you would call the company. Again, you know, not that there's anything wrong with, in moderation, some expressive complaining to your friends. Again, that can also produce some benefits. But complaining about the cable company to them is, is, is useless. But call the company. Um, it, express your dissatisfaction. You know, if you just call and say, you know, I want you to lower my bill – that's probably not going to get you very far because everybody would like their bill lowered. You know, why do you want your, your bill lowered? What is it that you think you're paying too much for? Do you think you're paying too much for your Internet? Do you think you're paying too much for the, the bundle? You know, what specifically is it that you think you're paying too much for? Have you done your research and, and compared it to other companies? You know, go in with some data to show them why you think you're paying too much. And then, of course, you could always threaten to leave that company um, because usually when you, you know, put that, well, you know, I've done my research, I can see that I can get the same package for, you know, $30 less, I think I'll go somewhere else. Usually they'll call back pretty quickly and ask you to stay for a reduced price. So I love this. Already it's it's less of a complaint and more of all of us doing our homework and asking questions. 
Yes, but you've still expressed your dissatisfaction, which by definition is, is what a complaint is. It's an expression of dissatisfaction. So you've done that, but you've, you're right. You've also done your research for it. We're talking with Dr. Robin Kowalski, and we're learning how to complain properly today on London Live. Dr. Kowalski is a centennial professor of psychology at Clemson University with research that focuses primarily on aversive interpersonal behaviors like complaining, like teasing, and like bullying. So in terms of how to complain, what we just talked about is doing it in in kind of in person or over the phone. There are other ways to complain. People complain on social media all the time. People complain by way of emails or the dreaded, ooh, they sent a letter. They must be serious about this. So in in terms of forms of complaint, what should we be looking at and what should we know? Well, you know, I think all those forms can be useful. Again, keeping in mind who the audience is. So, you know, from a company perspective, you know, social media can be very beneficial because companies do monitor their the social media, um, you know, Twitter um, you know, most of them have Facebook profile. Companies have Facebook profiles, etc. Um, and certainly, you know, email and phone calls can be effective as well. I mean, the companies, you know, don't want bad press being made about them, so they're going to they're monitor those and try to provide some satisfactory response to that. Um, you know, letters. You know, like you said, most people don't write letters anymore. That can take longer to get your satisfaction resolved. So, if if, if, it's, if it's talking about corporate complaining, I probably would not recommend that as the most ideal way to do it. But again, you know, whether it's expressive complaining or complaining to a company, we all walk a really fine line. You know, if if we're complaining, um, you know, and really want some some resolution to it, you know, you, you can't just keep doing it over and over and over again because, you know, people are going to stop responding to that. So you've really got to get your ducks in a row before you go and issue the complaint. Interesting. And again, going back to that research, and it's almost like you present your argument. You do a little debate instead of just, uh, well, I'm whining about this or oh, I'm sick of this. Give us a, a reason why. Give us give us some options. Give us that sort of thing. Now, you mentioned the word satisfaction. What kind of satisfaction can come out of complaining the right way? Well, I say, based on the data that we have, you know, if it's done strategically, so if it's done in moderation and if you select the audience, to your complaint carefully, then it can improve affect. Um, it can result in improved relationships relative to people who complain excessively, you know, people who are not, you know, getting any benefit from the release of the dissatisfaction. Um, so, you know, it, it can produce a lot of benefits. And of course you can get some resolution to the to whatever it is you're you're upset about. Absolutely. But overall there there's kind of an interpersonal feeling of satisfaction if you're doing this right? If you're doing it right, yes. Now, yeah, but again, there's that fine line. Yeah, what if you're just someone who who just seems perpetually angry? You're just complaining about this and complaining. Uh, blah, blah. What can that do to somebody over time? That can't be healthy. No, it can't. And you know, there there are obviously individual differences in complaining. Everybody does it. That's what's fascinating about this behavior is that this is a behavior that every single person on the planet does, albeit to different degrees. So some people complain infrequently, some people complain excessively. Um, but it doesn't have to be accompanied by anger. So people who express their dissatisfaction and they do so in an angry manner, there's going to be a host of negative outcomes to be accompanied by that because they're constantly living in that world of negative affect. They're constantly living in that world of dissatisfaction. And they're also alienating a lot of people. So there's there's really nothing good that's going to come out of that. 
We are talking right now with Dr. Robin Kowalski, and we're talking about complaining. We're learning how to complain effectively. Dr. Kowalski is a centennial professor of psychology at Clemson University. Now, I, I just have one kind of last scenario in this. If you're complaining and you're doing it strategically and then you're doing it right, but you're doing it and you realize, you know, I'm getting a lot of stuff. I think about people who go into restaurants and they will get a meal and they will look for something wrong. And whether it's, oh, this was overcooked or this was undercooked, this is cold, you forgot my bread, uh, I think I see a hair, whatever it is, they're looking for something to get a discount or to get that meal for free. And when they do, then they come back and the next time they do it again and they do, and every time and eventually they become known to the restaurant saying, uh, here come those people. Should we just give them their free meal now? Can there be a danger, even if you're doing it strategically and effectively, that it kind of becomes an addiction? Yeah, but see, I don't really think that's strategic then, because I think that person is just using it. So they're not, in, in that case, they're not really dissatisfied. Like you said, they're just, they're just using it. Um, and it's interesting to use the word addiction, um, because that's sort of how it comes across, but they're making a negative impression then. So they have that fine line that I mentioned that you have to walk when you're complaining. Um, that, that's a great example of it. They've stepped way over that line. So, you know, it, they're clear clearly they're getting something for it, you know, and clearly that's something they desire, but for most of us, that's not, that's not the line that we want to step across. We don't want to, you know, risk a, our reputation or risk making that kind of negative impression in order to get, you know, a, a simple meal or a simple, you know, glass of wine or something like that out of it. Dr. Kowalski, this has been really informative. Anything else that you want to add before we finish up? No, yeah, well, I just would say one thing. I think that awareness can go a long way to, toward helping us be effective strategic complainers. Um, you know, I think the more we think about our own complaining, um, you know, for example, when I first started doing research in this area, I, I realized, um, you know, how often I complained. Um, so you can moderate your own complaining once you become more aware of it. So I think awareness is key. Dr. Kowalski, this has been great. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Dr. Robin Kowalski. Centennial Professor of Psychology at Clemson University talking about the proper way to complain. So in other words, make it an argument. Make it, you know, have an argument. Don't just call up and say, yeah, I want lower cable costs. Uh, Yeah, I I don't really like this. I I want something off my meal. Uh, It's raining again. That's not doing anything. Look for ways to do it constructively, and you will actually find benefits You know, we always hear people telling us, and right now it happens to be the teachers' unions, to write our local MPP. Oh, what we need is people to get in touch with their local politician and tell them how fed up they are so that they will see our side and we will wind up with what we need. Well, the reason that they do that is because that one response... That has a great bearing. You have no idea. You know, it's not that an MPP or any politician, for that matter, will pick up a cause just because, you know, or, or that, let's put it this way. It's not that a politician will pick up on a cause because a hundred people have come forward. It's more like two or four. And that's all it takes. And they think, whoa, well, if these four people are feeling this way everybody's got to be feeling this way. And it has a wide-ranging effect. Same sort of thing with complaining. And you never know. You make a difference. So thanks to Dr. Kowalski for teaching us the proper way to complain. 
We were very sad to find out that Russ Monteith has passed away. And Russ Monteith is a guy who I can remember seeing for the first time standing on a median with one of the nicest, happiest, smiliest faces, waving to people as they went by as he began to run for politics in the city of London. And he is somebody who was a deputy mayor, was a member of Board of Control, but someone who knew him very well is Cheryl Miller. And she had an opportunity to tell us about Russ Monteith. Russ was a, an interesting man. I've known him for quite a few years. In fact, we met through the Conservative Party of Ontario, and well, mainly Canada. Um, so we used to run into each other quite frequently. Um, and then when he was elected Board of Control, and he was actually the the uh, vice well deputy mayor <clears throat> because it was based on votes. I used to call him the keeper of the herd because we were a rambunctious bunch of people on council. There was a lot of new members. There was a lot of members that had high energy, lots of ideas, and you know, be <laughs> be damned the the, the process. But Russ was always calm, would always make time for you to meet with him in his office and sort of go through what your idea was. And it it was kind of like a calming space because you could go in there like a firecracker and walk out like a kitten. Russ was very good at doing that. And was that just in his nature? It sounds like he was perfect for that council at that time and that position. Yeah, if anybody was to be perfect, that was Russ, because Russ could sort of take it down, not just one notch, but he could take it down a large number of notches. He was conscientious and kind and very gentle and slow, so that, that when I go go in there and I'm talking about 20 miles an hour and I'm banging it all out there, he'd say, sit down and just calm down and let's start over. And that was good for me. Because if not, I'd, I'd barrel somebody over, and and he was not the kind of person. He would be receptive, he would listen, he would give me advice, but he would calm me down. And I like that about him. He used to do that around the council table, too. Considerate and thoughtful, and let's look at it a different way. Let's, let's, let's look at this in a different perspective. Let's look at... The, how we can understand this difference. So, yeah, Russ, Russ was a good asset to our council at the time. We are talking with Cheryl Miller and remembering the life of Russ Monteith, who has passed away at the age of 85. In political dealings, is that kind of a, a rare characteristic to have? There's a lot of bombastic personalities in politics. Mm-hmm. Would Russ's personality have been one that you didn't see and, and maybe we needed more of? <laughs> oh, yeah. He was so calming. Yes, very few people like that. Because politics, it's your ideas, and, and it's the most important thing in the world. And if you you need to do this, Russ could sort of bring us together. He was he'd take all he'd take the wool and he'd get the knitting needles and bring us together. But he'd do it in a nice way. And very few. You're right. There's very few politicians, and this is from yesteryears because I think. I don't know, it seems to me politicians aren't quite as bombastic and, and as excitable as, as we were because we came in after some horrible times and wanted to make London so much better that everybody, oh, I always use the analogy, was like popcorn in a frying pan, and Russ had the ability to put the lid on it. 
Well said. Cheryl Miller joining us. Cheryl, in the world of, of nice guys, sometimes it's difficult for nice guys to get noticed, to get elected. But like you mentioned, he got a ton of votes when he ran. Yeah, because it was the beautiful process. The process was he ran citywide, and there was always the need for counterbalance. Board of Control brought a different perspective, and we can't revisit that, obviously, but it's too bad. So Russ ran citywide, so he had a a full complement of people in the city that knew him from his, his legal practice, from his community work, from his charity work, and from the, the, the different uh, parties. So, yes, it's hard to be elected like that, and he was certainly needed at that time. And even to see him out waving, that was so different than what I could picture Russ doing. But he was faithful, he was out there, and his supporters got him elected, and he did the job for them. City Council will also have social events. Was he the same guy outside of the office that he was inside the office? <laughs> Absolutely. Totally. Yep. He was always... <clears throat> Russ, he, he never got... He never got... I never saw him overreact. I never saw him party like it's no tomorrow. Um, always the same man. You could always count on him. And that was lovely because... You know, in in world of politics, there's very few people you can hang on to and count, and he was one of them. Cheryl, thanks so much for this. Oh, you're welcome, Mike. You're very welcome. Cheryl Miller on the life of Russ Monteith. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 